Hi, welcome to the Data Defender Forum episode number two. Uh, my name is Sidney Kalash, and I am joined by my great partner Bart Farrell. Um, so in today's episode, we are going to speak about private SaaS. Uh, and joining us uh, for this conversation are Michel Trico, the co-founder and CEO at Airbyte. Uh, Airbyte is a new open source ELT standard for replicating data from application, API, and databases. Uh, we also have Arul Jegadis Francis, the co-founder at Obverse, uh, which provides fully managed open source DevOps tool that can run anywhere. Hello to both of you. Thank you for joining us. Hey guys. Um, Thank you, Sir. Sir Ryan Bart. <laughs> Welcome. Welcome. So before we jump in the conversation, uh, let's go over um, a quick briefing on the situation. So the SaaS market uh, today is roughly around 251 billion and uh, planning on reaching 883 billions by 2022, uh, 2029, excuse me, that's a lot of billions. Um, actually today, 50% uh, of, uh, of the software that company uses are SaaS. Um, and, and most IT decision makers said that um, SaaS would be the biggest uh, growth in, in the cloud area. So it's, 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 it's here to stay. Um, but for many companies, uh, using SaaS is not an option because of security standards, data regulation laws. Um, Industry like healthcare and finance historically have very high security standards, but now any companies that store custom, uh, customer data have to respect some sort of standards. And with 71% of countries uh, having some sort of data, reg um, data regulation or legislation, though it's not going anywhere. And one example is its data residency requirements uh, that require um, a nation citizen's data to be um, collected, processed installed inside uh, the country where they are from. Um, not respecting this can lead to serious fine and sanction. For instance, uh, American Express and Dynercare uh, were recently for forbidden to issue new card in India because they were not respecting data storage rule, which is a big deal for Dynercare, which has the largest uh, share of India, uh, in India of green card, um, which is quite interesting. So let's get started. Um, our role. Uh, can you give me um, what what's your definition of, of private SaaS? Sure. So we all already know about SaaS. So SaaS is where a provider or a vendor takes a piece of software, manages it completely, and offers it as a service. Now, private SaaS is where you actually push that software or the data managed by that software to 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 the customer's own infrastructure or to a certain region. Uh, so that makes it private SaaS. So in which case, the particular piece of software becomes private to that particular set of users or customers. But at the same time, the vendor brings in all the benefits of SaaS, like managing managing all aspects of running the tools, upgrading it, uh, taking care of security, providing reliability, guarantees, etc. So basically, you would split the control plane and data plane and make the data plane live where the customer wants it to live. Um, that's that's private SaaS. You got it. And can you give like, a, you know, in the context of your company, can you uh, explain, you know, in very specific business and use case, what does it mean for Obverse? Sure. So Obverse provides uh, uh, OSS-based 
manage DevOps tools platform. So we basically bring in various DevOps tools on top of the platform. So in our case, we provide our customers with tools that touch their version control system, their production system, basically the sensitive parts of their software delivery pipeline. So in our use case, what we do is the tools themselves are run within the customer's um, own network, um, whether it's their cloud account or whether whether it's their data center. The tools are executed in within the customer's data residency, data governance perimeter. But the control plane on how we manage those tools lives in our cloud. Um, so in our case, so the line is between the tools themselves and the control plane. Thank you. Uh, Michel, can, can you brief us on, on AirMai? Like, um, you know, what, what does this like separation means for you? And also, why did you decide, you know, to do that? Yeah. So, Airbyte is is an is an open source data movement platform. And whenever we talk about private uh, private SaaS, it's generally that you have um, you have a boundary around something that you manage that cannot leave your control. And in general, this is data. People don't want data to leave uh, the the safety of their cloud, the safety of their databases. And what we discovered with uh, with actually with Airbyte Open Source that a lot of people there are a lot of vendors that do data movement. But the reason why people were taking open source was because the moment you have open source, it means that you're taking the software and you are running it within your own infrastructure. The thing is by doing that you're losing the uh, the value that SaaS brings you. Like SaaS brings you, uh, yeah, as Aru as was saying, this gives you like software upgrade. Even for the company to develop, it's easier to develop on SaaS because you can have very short cycle of, of development and releases, which is very different than when you ship software. And for us, the moment we discover that, okay, this is the reason why people want it. It's not so much for, they want to own the software. It's just that they want to own where the data is actually moving. This is when we decided to say, okay, Airbyte is split in two pieces, one that is called the control plane, one that is called the data plane. And from there, you can decide the piece that's really matter for them as a private SaaS is data plane is controlled by their IT team, by their infrastructure. And that's why we're making that split between control plane and data plane. And interestingly, we actually dog-footed the, the splits for the cloud product of Airbyte, which is, you know, you said we have GDPR, we have CCPA, there are some regulation, uh, like geographic regulation, and Airbyte is operating this way, which is we have one control plane that only contains configuration, user management, uh, but the rest, like credentials and where the data is actually moving can actually go from one cloud to another, from one geography to another, and the user has the choice to decide, yes, I want the data to run there. But this is for cloud, but this is basically the same thing that then happened to potential customer, which is, I have my infrastructure, let's run the data plane on my cloud. Uh, but yeah, the driver is always the security and the control over your data. And uh, you you announced this as part of the... Of, uh... You know, Europe lunch, like, 
did you like was there a specific reason or story where you was it not possible for users to run airbyte prior to this or it was complicated or difficult like is there a backstory to this i think it's just we started by releasing open source and we looked at our daily active user or people that are working with uh, with Airbyte open source and try to figure out where are the different markets. And it was very clear that, yes, we have a massive chunk in Northern America, and we also have a, a very big chunk in Europe. Now for cloud, the first time we released it, and that's, become, that's also because we are a startup, we focused on let's launch it in the US, but very, very quickly because we have this um, we have this ambition of moving data everywhere. We very quickly created that split between the control plane and the data plane. And for us, the, the, the testing ground for that model was let's expand to Europe. Let's get all the customers that are ready for us in Europe. Let's address their needs. Uh, but yeah, the need was, was really a, a, a commercial one, which is there is a large audience for Airbyte in Europe. And if we just run in the US, we cannot address it, especially because we're a data product. Very interesting. I see. I think about that. Yeah. No, no. And related to that is that, you know, we have an interesting mixture of, you know, two Europeans living in the US and American living in Europe, you know, people in different places that, that are not where they originally weren't. What, what I'm going for with this, though, is that for people that are working in the data space or that are thinking about, you know, building a private SaaS, this is it safe to say that they simply cannot be thinking locally because in a good situation, you know, you're going to have customers that are in these other places. You know, we, you, we you know, Silvan touched on briefly in the beginning an article that was uh, shared by our role about, you know, how difficulties around data storage for credit card companies in India, all of a sudden something that might not be a problem in one place is a problem in another. What is it that companies that are developing, you know, private SaaS should be keeping in mind? They might be thinking, well, you know, I'm coming from a technical background, but all of a sudden your technical background has a lot to do with international regulations around data protection, data security compliance. Otto, what advice would you give to companies that are out there trying to develop a private SaaS in that sense of think globally from the very beginning? Yeah, I think I think uh, um, one of the things that I want to touch on that Mitchell mentioned as well is when you are when you get into private SaaS, when you're thinking about private SaaS, I think you should first think about dogfooding your own like SaaS implementation, just how you are thinking about private SaaS, and that's the way we do it as well. Like we have a SaaS offering and a private SaaS offering, and we operate both the offerings very similarly. Even our SaaS, where we have the control plane and the data plane is separated, so we dog food that. So, so otherwise you are gonna do do your operations in two different ways, and it'll be very difficult for you. So that's number one. Your your SaaS offering, private SaaS, you should operate them very similar. Um, and secondly, if you are if you're thinking about um, coming into private SaaS, this whole separation of control plane and data plane is very important because it's usually the data plane is where all these regulations come in. Regulations, data residency, data governance. So so as long as your data plane can move around anywhere, can live anywhere, I think, I think you are good. So that should be part of your base architecture. On day one, you should actually think about that. Um, a few other operational areas that you have to think about are 
um, your ability to run hundreds of single tenant systems. In traditional SaaS, often you are dealing with one multi-tenant system. With private SaaS, implicitly, every instance is going to be a single tenant system. So your architecture and your deployment architecture, your operations framework should support hundreds of single tenant systems. Uh, so that's, again, a first principle you should be able to support that. Um, then this whole remote management, like you're going to deploy to and operate infrastructure that you cannot touch and see. You cannot see your engineers will not have direct access to that infrastructure. So you should be able to handle that. This whole remote management, you should be able to do that. Um, and then observability. You should have really deep and robust observability infrastructure so that you know the health of what you're operating remotely. And you're going to run about like yeah, hundreds of these instances remotely. So your observability framework should be robust enough to bring everything in. Um, and again, I think you can uh, you can try out all this by dogfooding your SaaS itself. You can develop your SaaS to dogfood this, and then then think about private SaaS. Great, thank you. And Michelle, anything you'd like to add to that? Yeah, I mean, I agree with the point where, as engineers, you want to build a product, and then suddenly you have this external force that's coming on top of your product. And I, I always put that, I mean, we work in data, so for me, everything is about data. But this is what place where if you are in the data space, you need to have to bring people that have that sensibility, that sensitivity around what are the requirements of data. And sometimes you don't have to be an expert, but you need to know that you have regulation. People care so much about the security of their data that you have to protect it. The one is like, how do you access that data? What secrets do you have? And it doesn't have to be, you don't have to be a legal expert, but you do have to bring a team that have that sensitivity because they will also make the right choices. And, you know, when we, when we built Airbyte, we, like, I come from a pretty large data company and one that was operating uh, globally. And I actually brought some people with me that even though they were not experts, they had been living and breathing every type of decision that is made to make data safe. And then it becomes something that is encoded into your um, like development practices. Now, we also brought um, a data uh, regulation expert with us to just help us on certification, uh, security diagram, et cetera, et cetera. Because yes, we, we're dealing with people's data and whether it's on, on the private SaaS or whether it's on the public SaaS or whether it's on open source, we need to ensure that we build very strong foundation from, from the beginning. Uh, so yeah, that's, uh, that's mostly what I have to add. The, I would say the, the thing about observability, uh, this is a big deal because in a way you can almost consider that observability and getting some telemetry from, um, single tenant um, deployment or like a private size deployment is a type of data. So by doing private size, you're not also completely removing the, the scrutiny that companies put on your company and uh, on your product because you're still establishing a link between their infrastructure and your infrastructure. 
And that could be seen as a point of failure in terms of security. So it's not a silver bullet, but it reduces the, the blast radius in case there is, a, there is something happening. But you will still have to explain something there. So it's not a silver bullet, but it definitely helps on like the day-to-day. Yeah, we, we had an interesting conversation in the first episode of the Data Defender Forum where one of the guests with a lawyer said that he, he was working with software vendor in, in when, when GDPR was about to come. And one thing he said that I thought was very interesting is that software companies cannot possibly make their software compliant to every single uh, data regulation that there is out there. Um, it's... Today, there is 137 countries who have some type of, of data protection law. But what software vendors can do is make their software a bold, right, capable of, of uh, being in compliance. And so, and so I think that's what private SaaS is doing in some way. It's empowering end users to, um, to, to put in place the security and, and the law that they need to respect. But with that come also some... I, I mean, it's a choice. I think, like, I guess most companies would use SaaS if they can, perhaps private SaaS as a secondary option. But one question I have to both of you: Do you do you provide like best practices uh, when it comes to, for instance, security or how to to be in compliance uh, when it comes to for your user to use your software? So, do you is it something you take responsibility, like providing guidance to help them? Um. Yeah, so for everything that is private SaaS related, for us, this is still something that is in the beginning. So there is also a, a pretty large um, like learning phase. Now, I would almost consider the open source deployment at that point like a, a child of a SaaS, uh, like private SaaS, which is we don't own the control plane at that point, like our customers do. But we definitely help our, on best practices on how do you like how do you create your deployment, how you build security around it. And one thing that we're actually working on right now is additional like packages that are very security related around like how do you expand the software within your organization rather than leaving it within your team. Like everything around like SSO, role access management, audit logs. Like these are things that you need to have the moment you start dealing with data. You need to understand who is making changes, how they are making changes, what kind of changes they are making. So there is something there. Uh, today, you can already get it, but people have to pull this information outside of Airbyte. And we, what we want is to really push it to observability system and audit systems. But w w one thing that we, we actually started to do on, on, uh, on open source is for example, just very simple, detecting when someone is installing Airbyte on a public instance, something that is accessible from the outside. Because it, it seems obvious that this is not something you should be doing, but sometimes just for simplicity, you're just going to spin up an instance, run the software there, make it get accessible through the outside. And because Airbyte is a data software that is used to move data, it becomes a very uh, good uh, place where to try to gain access to. So right now we've put a lot of protection in open source to pro actually protect our open source users. So even if they don't look at the documentation, 
it is in the software where we run these checks of, hey, can I access Airbyte from the outside? If you, if it is, we're just telling you. You can still do it, but we're telling you. And that's one way for us of self-serving the, the good practices. Not, try not to do it. Uh, but yeah, that's, uh, that's definitely something that we are, we're pushing for. I wonder, is, it, is there anything that Overt is doing or want to do in the future regarding that? Yeah, I think when it comes to private SaaS, the users slash customers do look forward to the vendor for some of these guidelines. So in our case, um, again, as Michelle mentioned, with private SaaS, since, I mean, you still have that absorbability telemetry coming out and all that. So there's still that link. And um, so what we do is we provide enough guidance around how to make this link like as secure as possible, how to ensure the blast radius is like as minimum as possible with respect to establishing this link and with respect to running the Opsos software within the customer's, uh, customer's uh, account. So we do have like set of, set of uh, guidelines that we provide our customers around that. Um, and the, yeah, with respect to private SaaS, this is definitely an expectation from the vendors um, to, to help their users out. Yeah. Now, one of the things that you get from, uh, from private SaaS and the reason why people uh, want this type of deployment model is because they've already set up good practices internally. If you have to be PCI compliant, you have already um, hardened your system. And what you want is you want to, and, and in general, it's not specific to, to systems. It's, uh, it's almost like they create the right boundaries, the right um, observability for any software that gets installed within this type of environment. And that's the reason why private SaaS is very appealing to, uh, to companies because now they've already proven that the system is safe and they want to deploy within a safe system. So sometimes our customers are more expert than us in what does it mean to deploy in a PCI compliant um, uh, environment because they have it, they have all the security measures in place and they just know I can drop the software and it's going to be automatically compliant because it runs in a monitored and secure system. And, and with that in mind, it's interesting because as you said, some customers need a little bit of extra support or training, and that's where you have to have those internal resources to be able to provide that. Do you feel though that there are any particular industries or use cases where private SaaS is particularly well-suited? You know, when we talk about data protection, we're often thinking about telecommunications, healthcare, uh, you know, government data, uh, th things of that nature, obviously financial services. Um, are, are there any particular industries or use cases where you think it's a better match than others? Yeah, so I think naturally for FinTech and healthcare organizations, this becomes almost, uh, almost a mandatory requirement where they do have to fulfill various data regulations, data, data handling regulations. So it's a it's a natural uh, um, requirement there in those industries, and we see that with uh, our customer base as well. the The kind of customers who opt for private SaaS are mostly fintech and healthcare in our case. But but at the same time, now we actually opsus we deal with like DevOps tools where almost any organization 
uh, when it comes to DevOps tools, your tools are going to touch the most sensitive part of your infrastructure. It's going to touch your version control. It's going to touch your production deployment system. And it's going to touch everything in between. So so even if you are in an industry where, where data regulations are not a big deal, you may still want to, just from a general security practice, you may still want to like consider keeping these tools within within your um, data governance, within your your network period. Um, but to answer your question, we in the field we are seeing um, the initial uptake from fintech and uh, healthcare healthcare organizations and companies like residing in a geographical region where like like the European Union where where they have additional data protection regulations. And it's good. It's something as well, too, in the conversation Silvana have been having, we talk about stakeholders. Because like you said, okay, you're talking about DevOps teams, but they're also having access to very delicate parts of infrastructure to say, look, it's out of sight, it's out of mind, I have nothing to do with that. Where do we draw the line, you know, in terms of who's going to bear the responsibility? And and that's something that a lot of organizations are wrestling with. And, and once again, Inside the European Union, it's one thing. Outside, it's another. So being familiar with those things, and once again, folks coming from a technical background, suddenly feeling like they have legal obligations, which they may not feel like they're properly trained on. We have this sort of finger pointing of, it's in your hand, it's in my hand, it's you know, chief data protection officer. In, in my particular case, I was working for a British um, uh, startup in 2018 when GDPR came out. And of course, it was also, you know, right around the same time Brexit was happening. So then additional questions started getting asked. And so getting to the point where we're at now and, you know, global organizations that are remote first, people all over the world, I think it's something that's being better built into their DNA. Um, so like you said, though, Otterwell, is that, you know, DevOps teams also are going to be part of the equation. Um, Michelle, anything that you've noticed that's more industry specific of, you know, particular use cases that are better aligned for private tasks? I mean, I'm going to to repeat what Arrow said. When, like, fintech is one, but healthcare is a very big one. I think here it's just, and sometimes it's also that people don't know what they can and cannot do. And they prefer to go for the safest option, even though a cloud solution could be something. Like, you know, for example, a very simple example is, is uh, Airbyte Cloud. We don't store data. We are, and for in the healthcare industry, Airbyte can be considered to be uh, a HIPAA conduit. The same way the post office is a HIPAA conduit. Like the post office is moving letters from the doctor office to the patient, and they don't need to be HIPAA compliant. Although in the letters, you have PHI, you have information about health people, about people's health. And it's the same thing for data. But even though they're fine sending letters when it comes to the data world and the, in the digital world it changes their perspective and they're educated on the on the on the paper side but they are, might not be on the data side and they could be using it by cloud but they prefer to be on the extra uh safe uh side and that's why they go for this type of solution so yeah i agree like here education or like having standard that can be a little bit clearer on what you can and cannot do would be a big help for this industry that is really looking to get more modernization in how they deal with data, how they deal with uh, information uh, transmission. So 
yeah, like healthcare is a big one. Like most of like many, many, many of our um, open source user or people that are looking to get into the this hybrid model are looking are from the the health uh, the health industry. So how how do you say like you know like to I mean today and like few months ago I, I googled private SaaS and they were like nearly nothing and now you you Google private SaaS and Palantir is speaking about it you know so it's it's becoming a thing. Uh, that's a question to, to for both of you like um and Arun you can start like what what how do you see the the private SaaS trend uh fitting into the, the broader landscape of enterprise software? Yeah, I think uh, when we started Opsource, this was part of the founding thesis because we, we saw this uh, as a gap in the industry. And now in the last 18 months, we do see a lot of other vendors talking about it and also some standard, like Palante, right? Some standard operating models emerging as well. Um, uh, we see, like at least in the DevOps world, we see a lot of vendors either announcing support for something that looks like private SaaS, addressing that problem or, or vendors who, who already have support for that. Like we saw it from like Preset, which is, an, which is a data visualization platform. They have what they call it as a managed private cloud, which is private SaaS, their, their terminology for that. We, we see GitLab moving towards single channel systems, even though it still runs in their cloud. We see it from Gitpod is something that's uh, now supporting uh, private SaaS. So we do see this coming from uh, various vendors. So as we go, uh, we definitely see this as a standard model of delivery tools or delivery software, um, especially the data ops, uh, DevOps, MLOps uh, world to begin with. Um, and as we go, obviously we will see some standard frameworks and standard ways of operating private SaaS. When it comes to SaaS, there are definitely standard ways to run. When it comes to self-hosted, open source self-hosted world also, there are standard ways of shipping your software and supporting it. Similarly, we'll definitely see a lot of, in the enterprise world, we'll definitely see some standard operating ways uh, emerging. So, uh, Yeah, same, same question for you, Michel, about the trend, but I want to I want to add something to that question, jumping on what Arul just said about standards. Like, do you think there is a need as a, as an industry to develop some standards, either on the you know, vendor side, how you should, you should build your or private SaaS and then how it should be exposed, you know, to the user. Like, do you think that we need as an industry to come up with something that could unify the experience and ma it makes the use of it easier? Yeah. So. I would say that we probably want to go to the basics of why public SaaS became something. And the reason is, yes, there is all the development aspect, the quick releases, the bug fixes, etc. but there is also a huge problem into shipping software on an infrastructure that you know nothing about and where everybody is different. What you, the reason why private SaaS is becoming something a lot more real and a lot more feasible where you can basically get the best of both worlds. It's just that the public cloud have taken over most of the infrastructure. And by doing so, they've removed a lot of the, uh, like 
the, the, the landscape is more homogeneous. You know what services you can access. And it means that instead of having to build a software for 500 different companies, you can just build a software for one company with the assumption that all the AWS services, all the Google services, all the Azure services are available. So you're still, now you're still developing a, a software only once instead of 500 times. So for me, that's one of the, the reasons why it, it's almost becoming a standard. Like you expect to have access to this kind of services and all the public clouds are offering some flavor of that, uh, of that uh, yeah, some flavor of it. Now, what becomes interesting is also the, the type of technology that have come over the past years. And here I'm thinking about Kubernetes, for example. Uh, one reason why it has taken the world is it had created an execution standard. Like this is how you ship application. And this is how you make sure that you don't have to think about what type of instance you're running on, what type of database you're running, like how you do monitoring, how do you observability. It's just that these are um, these are fundamentals that are part of this platform. And the fact that now all the public cloud support Kubernetes is just a step forward for private cloud. It's just you can ship software and you know how it's going to run, how it's going to scale, how you're going to observe it, how you're going to track and monitor it and how you're going to log everything that's happening. And you're creating a, a framework for building application that you can ship. Um, so I, I'm not sure I'm answering completely your question, but this is how I'm seeing the, the new standard that has happened. It's just the execution layer, the infrastructure layer is becoming more of a standard today. Yeah. Uh, I think if I can add, I think, I think, uh, that's a great point, uh, without something like Kubernetes. Um, I, I don't think we could have developed any private SaaS like solution. Um, so something like Kubernetes, uh, and the maturity and adoption of generally public cloud infrastructure has really become the tech enabler to enable enterprises now to think about private SaaS. Um, so I think that's a very important like tech enabler. Um, I think Silvan, you asked about other standards. So I think I think it's about time for now some of these early private SaaS vendors to come together and maybe define some general standards. Because when you go to a new customer with the private SaaS infrastructure, we get some common questions around yeah, how are you handling data, how are you handling uh, telemetry. Uh, what kind of audit do you generate, etc. So something like the SOC audit or some standard framework, it's important to bring it in. So so any new private SaaS vendor, as long as they satisfy the, the standards, then they are good to go. So the security teams, enforcement teams, CISOs can use that framework to assess the security readiness of a new private SaaS vendor. I think, I think we are at a stage where where it's time to put together some standard standard um, operating procedures um, so the industry can easily assess different private SaaS vendors. No, I think there's a lot to be said for that because with, you know, seeing the development evolution of Kubernetes in a lot of cases, like, okay, there's been this wild west phase and now we kind of want to calm things down, standardization of practice. 
a lot of times there are things that are on a need to know basis. A developer doesn't have to know absolutely everything. There are guardrails with policies that keep them focused on the things that are actually important. When we talk, I remember asking once on Twitter, what's the most difficult thing about uh, learning Kubernetes? And a lot of people responded, RBAC, you know, role-based access control. So if we take that you know, to the data, the data area as well, a lot of times we're talking about threats, fear, risk, and you know, data breaches. A lot of things that people think like, I'm not really excited about learning this and certainly hope it doesn't become my responsibility because if something goes wrong, then there's a lot, of, you know, there's, you know, a lot at stake there. I really like what you mentioned though, Otterl, is that for organizations that are in this position of moving towards private SaaS, how can some of these things become standardized, you know, with community knowledge sharing about around best practices so that that value can be delivered faster with fewer headaches and less of a feeling of, I need to learn absolutely everything. How can we move from a, a less of a threat-based, fear-based system and more around incentives on both sides so that knowledge standards are brought up to are brought to, uh, to, to where they need to be? Both of you are, you know, founders. If you're hiring folks, how can you know that they really understand this? As in, you know, we talk about certifications for organizations, but also for individuals to make sure that everyone's on a level playing field, particularly in this international context. Where do you see these things going in the coming months and years, Michelle, regarding standardization? What is it that's not happening right now that should be happening? That's a good question. Um, one thing that frightens companies for doing private SaaS is what we talked about before, which is you're losing visibility on the system. And this is probably the largest hindrance to doing um, to doing private SaaS because suddenly people have the same expectations they would have for a SaaS product, but you have less of that control over the software, over the upgrade, over the environment. So you're basically operating blind with similar expectations that people have for public SaaS. So in terms of product perception, that could be a problem where someone changes a security rule somewhere and it breaks your software. But people are not going to look at who changed the rule. They're going to look at, hey, your software stopped working. What, what's happening? And if I were to put things in order then and to, feel, to, to get people to feel good about, if I were to do any kind of standardization, it would be around the observability of the deployment. Because the moment you have this observability and it is baked into a standard, it means that this friction point of people say, hey, but you have access to my observability data, and I don't know if you, what you're doing with this, uh, with this data. The moment you have a standard, then there is almost like a, an agreement that this is how the world works today. You don't have to worry about it. We'll get the data that we need to operate the software. You can actually audit what we're looking at. But for me, that would be the first thing to do, which is, how do you operate the software rather than the software itself? And how do you give permission? How do you audit what the vendor is doing with the with that data? So that would probably be the, the, the way I would start. It's just foundational, which is you're losing visibility. Let's create recreate that visibility on the deployment. And with that in mind, yeah, without that visibility to be able to make proper decisions, to be able to understand all the other things that are going to happen is going to be yeah. much, much more difficult. So how do how do we define that? How do we how do we create a shared definition? I think what's very clear here is as sort of you know concluding the conversation is that 
you know, private SaaS is very much here to stay and is going to grow. As Silvan mentioned, not that long ago, wasn't a lot about it. I think it's very clear that we can expect more because when we're talking about topics of visibility, observability, data governance, ownership, organizations really wanting to, to dig deeper on that and to respect the regulations and to be scalable, you know, internationally, if, if you're a, you know, if you're a startup and you really want to be expanding and you can't tackle these issues or that your competitors can, well, you can't, even if maybe your technology is better, well, then that's a significant problem. So I think it's, I think it's good to see that there's, there's more interest going into this area and that, you know, as an industry that standards need to be established which is precisely why Salon and I are having these conversations. Start the revolution. But uh, no, but I, but I really mean that, that I think it's with, with each conversation that we have with people that are located in different parts of the world with different backgrounds, it does seem to be increasingly clear that while there are efforts being made, you know, towards regulation on the standardization side from those that are creating private tasks that are, you know, driving this. And for others that also want to get into it, maybe they're like, maybe it's not for me. Say, no, 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 no this is how it's done. And it's just, there is not 10,000 ways to do this. You know, there, there's, yes, there can be different flavors here and there, but in general, um, that these things can be standardized. I think that's, I think that's something to look forward to. So Vlad, is there anything that I haven't mentioned that, that you'd like to add before we wrap up? Uh, no, I think, yeah, I think the, the big takeaway from me from this conversation is yeah, we, we need to as, as uh, I think uh, I will say the uh, mission, uh, I will, I think, say, like, we see other products, also just the naming convention, right? Like, there are companies doing it, but they, they use different marketing names, right? So just the naming you know, might, you know, might need something to be pushed. Uh, maybe we need, maybe one of us, uh, Arul and Michelle, you need to give a talk at... at <laughs> uh, no, but really, because I do think, uh, I agree, like, uh, Kubernetes is a... You know, it's one. It's probably the key or one of the key in providing the, the standard um, to to run any private application in the agnostic way, right? Um, so, I, so I think it's it's a topic that needs to be discussed and and agreed on the definition, and then you can go on on the standard part. And as we know, naming thing is one of the hardest things in software. So, <laughs> and, and maybe just one thing we should we, we could ask is that. It also creates new business model at that point because, you know, in a pure deployment, yeah, you pay for a software license and then you pay for compute. For SaaS, you just pay for the service. Now you're basically having this hybrid type of pricing where the cost is not the burden. The, the cost of infrastructure is not the burden of the vendor, but the burden of the, the customer. And so it changes the pricing dynamics. And that's, if we're talking about standard, I, I would expect that at some point there will be a, a bit of a mixture between pure software shipping versus SaaS and something that comes in the middle. Yeah, I think I think we'll begin to see, like if you go to the pricing page of these vendors, you'll begin to see maybe another, another column that talks about private SaaS. So it's emerging as a third way of delivery software delivery tools. Um, yeah. Pro product marketing people in, in front, yeah. <laughs> another column <laughs> i like column um no i think that's anyway i think i think the um, the insights that have been shared today are 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 refreshing and and seeing that there is a there is a direction that's being taken and and that we can expect more from this um given the regulatory landscape 
given the things that we're seeing, and of course, also from a business perspective, why this makes sense to consider as an option. Um, so yeah, uh, thank you both very much for your time today. We will be definitely having you back. So don't go, don't, don't go too far. Um, remote, remote, remote contact helps, but uh, hopefully we'll be crossing, crossing paths in person, whether it's in KubeCon in Chicago or some other kind of thing, um, whether it's in the US or Europe. But uh, thank you very much. And, and we'll look forward to continuing the conversation. Thank you, Bart. Thank you, Sarah. Yeah, thanks for having us here. Uh, thanks, Silvan. Thanks, Bart. And Mitchell, nice uh, meeting you here today. Nice meeting you, Arul.